Thank you, Mark. Always a joy to have Mark with us. Thanks for being here this morning. Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as you turn there, let me just invite you to worship with us again this evening. We'll be at Camp Good News uh, for our Sunday evening service, and we'll be uh, sharing some, uh, some time in the, God's Word, worshiping together, and also having a kind of a church meeting. We'll be voting some people into membership, and we'll be talking about our upcoming plans for this year. We'll be talking about our installing of elders here in a few months. We'll also be talking about uh, purchasing the land. I mentioned that a few weeks ago, uh, purchasing the land out in Dutch Lane. Uh, this is in your bulletin, but just let me draw attention to it. Uh, if you are a regular, or if you're a giver to our church, uh, you have the opportunity to grab these, these giving envelopes that are out at the Welcome Center. And there's several different lines, uh, a variety of ways for you to choose to give. How exciting, right? Um, one of the lines is for tithes and offerings, and then another line is for building fund. And uh, if you give to the building fund, uh, what that means in these giving envelopes now is that you're giving towards the, the purchase of, these la- of the land, our, our land campaign. Now, if you are uh, from Bethany Baptist Church, or you've participated in the, the, the one church building campaign, and you've been giving continuing to give to that through your giving here at Bethany Community Church that affects uh, several of us. Uh, from now on, we ask that you use the, the other line. And so if you're still giving toward a pledge you made toward the One Church Building Campaign, and it's the most convenient way to give through Bethany Community Church still, we encourage you to do so. Just on that other line, mark uh, One Church Campaign or Old Pledge or uh, something like that, okay? I was going to say something funny, but it wasn't that funny. Um, so, <laughs> as are many of my things. Uh, so, if you're, if you're giving to the building fund here, kind of our phase one of purchasing that land, that's now the building fund line. If you're continuing to give the one church campaign that, we're, we're, that many of us are still pledging towards, then that's on the other line, if that, that makes sense. Your bulletin explains it as well, but I just want to be very clear as, uh, as, as you consider how God is calling you to give that you know what you're giving to And we'll talk more about that this evening. I encourage you to come and and worship with us this evening as well. Well, uh, we're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses uh, 5 through 25 together. If you please stand with me as we read the Gospel of Luke, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth together. Verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, as, uh, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord." And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel 
to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked, upon, looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You may be seated. May God instruct us, encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the light you've sent into the world, the light of your Son, and we pray that we as ambassadors of your light would, would shine brightly, would communicate the good news of your Son Jesus to others. We pray for our church as we worship you this morning. We pray that we would continue to worship you in both spirit and in truth, and we pray that you would Instruct our, our hearts, change our hearts in light of your word. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. In the coming weeks, you're going to begin seeing top ten lists from 2009. I saw one this last week, a top ten internet searches of 2009 that, that Yahoo put out. Number one was Michael Jackson. That was the top search of 2009 in Yahoo's search. And it was followed by uh, things like NASCAR and the Twilight movies, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, uh, uh, Britney Spears, Megan Fox. Those were some of the, the top searches of, of 2009. You're going to start seeing the top 10 news stories of, of 2009. I'm sure uh, Michael Jackson's death will be on there, the continuing economic recession, the Afghan war, uh, President Obama's uh, inauguration and, and first year of presidency. You're going to see a lot of news stories, a lot of stories about the top 10 events of 2009. I'd encourage you to do this. Think of the top two or three stories in your own life in 2009. What were the, the major events that took place in your life in, in 2009? And my guess is this. Uh, the things that you'll come up with is the, the major events that took place in your life in 2009 will look a little bit different than the top news stories that the Time Magazine or, or Newsweek or MSNBC puts out as, as its most important stories of 2009. So for example, in, unless you're a, a teenage girl, I doubt that the Twilight movie will have been one of the major events uh, of your life. Uh, in my own personal life, I think, you know, my, uh, my, my grandmother passed away in 2009. That's a, a major event that took place in my life this year, and yet uh, Fox News didn't really pick up on that story. My guess is this, as we compare what was important in our life, we'll find that the things that affected us weren't necessarily the things that made a big splash on the global scene. 
And what that can cause us to, to think sometimes is, is, is think along these lines. Okay, the, the major events of my life, the big things that happened to me, didn't even make a, a blip on the national or global scale. The things that were most crucial in my life didn't even register as important in a global sense. And if that's true, if the, the big events don't register on the global scene, what does that say about the unimportant events of my life? And we can begin to divide our lives into certain categories. We can say, well, well these are the, the really important things that I do. These are the things that, that maybe are important to God, and, you know, my ministry or, or certain things that I'm involved in. But I'm probably, we think this way, I'm also involved in a lot of unimportant things, little hobbies or ways I spend my free time that, that are completely unimportant. God doesn't care about my, my gardening hobby or, or what I watch on television in the evenings. It, God maybe cares about certain segments of my time, big events, major things that happen to me, but then there's a lot of things that are simply unimportant. Let me suggest to you that is a wrong way to think about our lives. The biblical way of understanding our lives is, is this. The God of the universe has saved us. He's looked upon us as, as individuals, and he has incredible interest in the most minute and intimate parts of our life. There is no important part and unimportant part. God is concerned with, with all the events of our lives. And the God of the universe in his, his great grand, glorious scheme of things is also concerned about the small parts of our lives. And, and by his grace, the, the small, seemingly insignificant elements of our lives are woven into his great, glorious, grand, salvific plan. It all kind of comes together. Here we are in Luke chapter 1. And as we look at Luke chapter 1, we, we see the story of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth. As we look at the story of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see the, the interweaving of God's grand, glorious plan of salvation with the lives of two seemingly insignificant people. Let's look at the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, and we're going to, to look at the story of, and see how God deals with their issues and with the issues of the nation of Israel and with the issues of the world and how they all come together in God's glorious, gracious plan. We're going to look at kind of four segments. Let's look first at this, the idea of the problem of a righteous couple here. And we see this in verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7, we read, we read this. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And what he's saying here is he's giving us a time frame in which these events occurred. These, occurred, these events occurred in, in Herod's reign. And Herod reigned from around 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And these events take place towards the end of Herod's reign. And then he introduces us to, to, to two individuals, Luke does. Individual number one is Zechariah. He's from the, the, the priestly line of Abijah. He's one of these 24 divisions of priests, and Zechariah is a priest. And every good priest needs a wife, and he has a wife. And God's law said certain things about the wife that a, a priest was to have. Told a priest that he was to take a, a wife from the people of Israel, and she was to, to never have been married before. And Elizabeth fits that bill. She also is from a, a priestly line. She's one of the daughters of Aaron. That's a very hot commodity for a priest. 
few months ago, I was asking Whitney, I said, Whitney, hypothetical here, if you and I had never gotten married and you met me now, what do you think? (laughs) Expecting a great answer, right? Oh, Daniel, you're so wonderful. Of course I'd want to marry you now. She didn't say that exactly. She asked me a question in return. She goes, well, would, would you be a pastor? Yes. She goes, eh, would you be my pastor? I said, yeah. She goes, it might be kind of weird to marry my pastor. <laughs> I said, well, you're married to your pastor now. Uh, and I thought, well, here's what I was asking. Like, you, know, you have movie stars. You have uh, you know, sulky teenage vampires and pastors, kind of all that heartthrob uh, scene. That's not the case, apparently. For Zachariah, for Zachariah, Zachariah, it, it's cool to marry a priest, someone from a priestly line, and so this is a good match, okay? Priest marries a wife from a priestly family, a good thing, okay? Now, the text tells us more about this couple. Not only are they from the priestly line, he says that, that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Whenever Luke talks about someone being righteous, this is what he means. He'll describe people as being righteous in this way. There are people who love God, and that love for God, even if they're lowly, even if they're sinners, that love for God, that faith that they have in God, causes them to to be transformed and walk in a righteous way. Luke is all about the lowly, all about sinners, all about outcasts, and a person who is righteous in Luke's gospel is a person who loves God, and then that love for God begins to flow into obedience to God's commandments. Conversely, the self-righteous in Luke's gospel are those who are are high in station, think highly of themselves, they think that they have the ability to follow God's laws and and their own traditions on their own, and so they're they're self-righteous people that don't have God's righteousness. Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth over here, these two characters that he's introducing us to, are righteous in a good sense. They're blameless before God, and they're walking in his commandments. They have a love for him, and that love for God is overflowing in obedience to him. But he tells us something else about Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? He says they don't have any children. And not only do they not have any children, Elizabeth is barren. And not only is she barren, but they're advanced in years. It's not looking good for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're a reproach among the people. And, and some of us in this room, some of you have experienced the pain that Zechariah and Elizabeth felt here. And here's what's also interesting to note, I think, about what Luke tells us. Notice he doesn't begin the story of of. Zachariah and Elizabeth at the beginning of their marriage, the beginning of their Zachariah's time as a priest, and say uh, they were they were righteous before God, and then they went a year without children, or five years and ten years, and got discouraged. No, he begins the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth after they have spent decades struggling with this, this pain that they have from not having children. And after decades of God denying them what they desired, they still are living in a righteous way. Here's the principle I think we gain as we look at verses 5 through 7 of these verses. It's this. Personal righteousness does not mean prominence or ease of life. Personal righteousness, personal righteousness does not mean prominence or or ease of life, but be righteous. 
Be righteous anyway. God's lack of intervention in your problems is not the same as, as inattention. And so often we have this idea, look, I have this situation, this problem, I desire for God to intervene in a certain way, and if he refuses to intervene in the way that I believe he should intervene, then, I, then I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to behave in a righteous manner. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a child in a family, and my parents are, are unreasonable. And so because my, my parents are unreasonable, I, I'm not going to act in obedience and respect toward them. Or I'm a husband, and I desire my wife to have a certain amount of respect towards me. And if she doesn't have that respect, well, then I'm not going to behave in a righteous way toward her. I'm not going to walk in a loving, loving way with her. Zachariah and Elizabeth, despite the fact that God has not intervened in their life in the way that they would have desired for him to intervene, they continue in righteous behavior. The difficulties we have in life are not excuses to be unrighteous. Zechariah and Elizabeth have a righteousness before God that's born of their faith and trust in him, and it manifests itself in continued obedience despite their difficult situation here. Now this next section, we see the announcement of an angel. Look here at the story. It says in verse 8, Now while he was serving as a priest before God, and these different divisions that that the priests were divided into, these 24 divisions. Remember, Zechariah is the division of Abijah. These 24 divisions, each division would serve two weeks during the year in the temple. Zechariah's division is called this this week to come serve in the temple, and, and each of these divisions would be broken down into smaller orders. And each order would serve one day at the temple. And there would be a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And each order, each day, consisted of about two to 3,000 priests. And in the week in which Luke is telling us about here, Zechariah's order goes one of the days to the temple, and there's the morning sacrifice. Two to 3,000 priests gather in this, this area, and lots are cast to see which priest will offer the incense, burn the incense on the altar in the holy place in the temple. The morning, the lots are cast, and this, this priest, other priest, is chosen. Zechariah is not surprised. It's been decades that he's been involved in this priestly ministry. He's never been selected to burn incense in the holy place. A priest will only have the opportunity to do that at most once in his life, and most priests never had the opportunity. Their chances weren't that great. The morning sacrifice is offered, and then around 3 p.m., they they gather in that place again, and lots are cast again. And this time, to his amazement, Zechariah is selected to burn the incense on the altar. Here's what took place. Zechariah would have walked into that, that inner area the courtyard of the priests, and on the outside, in the outside area, there'd be these, these two courtyards, and, and men and women would be praying. The men would be praying in the courtyard of the men. The women would be praying in the courtyard of the women. And perhaps as, as Zechariah walks into that courtyard of the priest, there's, there's uh, men praying, there's women praying, and over here there's a, a, a woman praying for the, the forgiveness of the sins of Israel. Over here, here's a man praying for, for the salvation of God, for God to deliver his people Israel. And, and here's a man over here uh, praying that, that God would heal his sick daughter. Uh, Zechariah, we see in verse 10, we see that all the people, this whole multitude is, is praying 
outside during the hour of incense, whenever Zechariah is going to burn the incense on this altar. Zechariah comes in the courtyard of the priests. The people are in the other courtyards praying their prayers. The sacrifice is offered there in the courtyard of the priest. The temple attendant nods towards Zechariah. Zechariah makes his way up the steps and walks through the door into the holy place. On his left would be the candle. On his right would be a a table with the bread on it. Right in front of him was a a veil. And that veil separated the, the holy place from the most holy place. And it was only the high priest that ever walked into the most holy place. And he only did so once a year. And there, right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, right in front of that veil is the altar of incense. And every priest knew what the responsibility of the priest was to do. The priest walked in there, burned the incense, prostrated himself on the ground, and backed out of the room as quickly as possible, burning the incense. And as the incense was burned, it was this symbolic representation of the prayers of the people being this this fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God as he, he heard and responded to the prayers. Zechariah walks in the room, walks past the candle, the table, burns the incense. The prayers of the people, the prayers of Zechariah, the prayers for forgiveness, the prayers for salvation, the prayers for deliverance, the prayers for healing, all kind of intermingle together and ascend toward heaven. And then Zechariah gets the shock of his life. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, that shock, the sudden fear of something not quite being the right way. I experience it frequently. My children and I love to, to scare one another. When I come home from work, my goal is to enter the house as quietly as possible so I can find them and scream and just terrify them. And It's one of the greatest joys of my life. <laughs> and the great part about it, too, is this. When I come home at night, I know I'm coming home, but they don't know I'm coming home. So if they're hiding in front, I know that they're going to be hiding. Right? This Wednesday, as I, was, I stayed late uh, in the office to, to study, and the kids were at Awana, and they, they come home and go to bed, and I, I stay late on Wednesday nights because they're going to be coming home late anyway from Awana, so it's kind of my, my study night. <clears throat> so I, I was thinking about this, this passage as I left the office and, and came and pulled in the, my driveway late at night. I was thinking about this passage just kind of mulling over as I walked in the door, and I thought, how sad that my children aren't here to to frighten me. They're upstairs asleep. I walked upstairs, and there's my beautiful wife, and I was about to say hi when suddenly these two little angels of my own jump up and scream at me, Daddy! And I let out the most manly, blood-curdling scream. And uh, both of my children were pretty excited about this. They were jumping up and down. But my eight-year-old daughter especially had both of her fists in the air jumping up. Yes, yes, that was great. That was wonderful, Daddy. Many parenting issues there. I mentioned that I thought the children should have been in bed. 
They didn't. They were just having a grand old time. They're, but you know that feeling, right? That that moment where something that's not supposed to be there is there, and it just kind of grips your heart. Oh, yeah. That's what Zachariah experiences here on a level that none of us have ever experienced. And I like the way Luke words it in verse twelve. It says that he was troubled when he saw him. He sees this, this angel right there on the right side of the altar of incense. So imagine there's the curtain, there's the altar of incense kind of on the left. So the angel is standing right there in front of the curtain. Zechariah is troubled and fear falls upon him. And then the angel says this, which angels are prone to say, hey, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. This is verse 13. Your, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And it's kind of interesting there that he says your prayer has been heard. What prayer was Zechariah praying? As a priest, presumably he would have been praying for the, the deliverance of the people of Israel, but perhaps there as he, as he burns the, 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 the incense, there's that cry of, of anguish as he thinks about the situation that, that he and his, his wife are in, and even there as he's there in the moment of the pinnacle of his career as a priest, he's still thinking about that, that burden, that personal burden that he and his wife Elizabeth face. And listen to the words of the angel. And listen to how the angel kind of intermingles John, uh, Zechariah, and Elizabeth's personal issues with the issues of, of the nation and the world. Listen to what the angel says. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. John means Yahweh is gracious. You will call his name John, and you, Zechariah, you and Elizabeth, will have joy and gladness. There will be a personal a deliverance of the, the burden and reproach that you've felt. There's going to be deliverance from that. There's going to be joy and, and gladness that you personally have. Then he goes on, and he says this talks about the son himself. He says, many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. And here's some of the things about what you need to do in, in preparation for him and, and his character and, and God's hand upon him. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is going to be a, a, a a, a young man, a man that brings not just you and Elizabeth great joy, but has a, an amazing ministry from God, and here's its national and global significance. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and here's the key part of his ministry, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There are no small parts of our lives. Here's a son, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that's going to, to alleviate the, the situation in which you find yourselves. But it's not just a son for you. There's a, a, a national significance and, and beyond that, a, a global significance to all of humanity of his birth and his ministry. Here's what we see, I believe, from the announcement of the angel. The principle, I believe, that we see is this. The God, the God who directs the affairs of, of the universe, cares about small problems. Live like it. The God of the universe the God of the entire cosmos 
cares about small problems. Live like it. It wouldn't seem like the infertility issues of a a priest and his wife would really show up on God's grand cosmic global scale, right? And here's an angel that appears to Zacharias and says, look, God is not unaware of what's taking place in your life. God's purposes are all intertwined here. Verse 10, remember that it says the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And that as that incense went up, it was kind of joined together with the fragrance from the, the, the aroma from the sacrifice. And it's all mingled together. There's people praying in the courtyard of the men and people praying in the courtyard of women. There's all these individual prayer requests. And they all are kind of joined together. And God, even though he is God of the universe, holding the entire cosmos together in the palm of his hand, God was not unaware of one of those prayers. And so often our tendency is to believe that God is concerned with the big events of my life, but unconcerned with the little events. God directs the affairs of the universe, and yet he cares about small problems. Live like it. Our lives are small, but that doesn't mean they're insignificant. There's eternal impact that each moment of our life has. They're intertwined with the great salvific purposes of God. Sometimes football players who are believers will say things like, well, I've been, you know, I praise God for this victory, or I praise God that we played well, or, or whatever, and they're mocked, right? Does God really care? Does God really care about how well you, you threw a, a pigskin over, a, a, you know, a white line on a field? Is that really what God's concerned about? Don't you think he has, you know, starving children in Africa to be concerned about big things? I was reading an article this last week by a person who's not a, not a believer, uh, to my knowledge, a person who kind of mocks people who are involved in, in, in sports and religion. It, it, he says some nice things about them as well, but he also sees, this is very interesting, he sees some danger, he sees some danger of, of evangelicals broadcasting their faith in football games. Listen to what he writes. He, he's writing about Tim Tebow in specific, uh, who, who had a, Bad day yesterday, you can pray for him. Uh, he says this, uh, Tim Tebow, is the, the quarterback for the University of Florida, says, uh, Tim Tebow promises a form of belief that makes unwelcome judgments about everybody else's religion. Tim Tebow p- promotes a form of belief that makes unwelcome judgments about everyone else's b- religion. In other words, a Tim Tebow proclaims through his through his. Uh, prominence as a football player proclaims that the message of Jesus Christ and encourages people to place their faith in Jesus Christ, which therefore makes unwelcome judgments about beliefs that other people have. And then he says this, it's a Jesus or else message. Is football insignificant really? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe the, the actual act of, of carrying a football seems kind of small and petty, but are there eternal ripples that take place from our involvement on a football field. Maybe our, 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 our hobby of gardening seems kind of insignificant, but are there eternal ripples that gardening can have? Uh, maybe perhaps our, our decision to, to buy something seems kind of insignificant in the grand global cosmic scheme of things, but, but is it really? 
Here's what I believe we see from the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth as this angel talks to them. He's talking about John the Baptist, who's going to be a, a messenger of Jesus Christ. He's going to be preparing the, the hearts of the, the people and, and turning them back toward the, the Lord and calling them to repentance. It's a pretty big deal. And what does he begin his message with? Hey, God has heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. That's seemingly insignificant as we think about God's cosmic plan of salvation, and yet it's what the angel begins his message with. God is concerned not with just the, the let me put it this way, there are no big and small details of our lives. Every aspect of our life has the opportunity to be used for God's glory. Is football a big deal? Yes. I believe this, this writer in USA Today rightly recognizes, even if he disagrees with what Tim Tebow is doing, rightly recognizes that there are, there are important effects that our beliefs have. The God of the universe who directs the affairs of the universe, cares about our small problems, live like it. Allow God to show you, even in the small things in your life, how to bring him glory. Okay, so we see that the problem of this righteous couple, we see the announcement of the angel, and next we see the, the response of Zechariah, the response of Zechariah in verses 18 through 23. Now, I, I think this is where the real tension of the story takes place. You have this, remember, these, take, these things take place during the days of Herod. This is a, a major time, the people of Israel, they're, they're crying out for God's deliverance. That's when these things are taking place. You have this righteous couple who, who, need, who desire this child. You have all these people, verse 10, who are outside praying for God's deliverance. You have Zechariah offering the, 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 the burning of the incense on the altar of incense. And you have this angel that's just appeared before Zechariah saying, look, here's what God is going to do to answer your issue and to, to handle all these other issues of the nation of Israel. Here's, here's how God is going to deliver you. And now the question is, how is Zechariah going to respond to this amazing message of God's salvation, not just for him, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the world? And here's how Zechariah responds. Now, now, how am I going to be sure about this? How am I going to know that word no there means to, to be sure of. And he focuses on, that's what he focuses on. He doesn't question God's plan, his big plan. He doesn't question the, the, the big issue of this person coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. He questions, he questions his individual situation. Now, <clears throat> angel, let me remind you, maybe you don't get this, but I'm a little old, and uh, my wife is no spring chicken. I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Zechariah was a priest. He should have known the, the, the situations in, in which God had, had dealt with in the past, and it's interesting, too. When he says advanced in years, sometimes we have this, this idea that, like, Zachariah was, was about to kick it, okay? He you know, was you know, digging his own grave and was just about to, to fall over. Old age is a relative term, right? This last week, I was, I was in Texas. I have a sister who's, who's about 10 years younger than I am. Nine years, 11 months, but who's counting? And uh, 
Now, in my mind, we're kind of the same age, right? I mean, uh, we both have the same parents, same generation. She has this uh, wonderful young man that she's, she's dating right now, and we got to spend some time with him. We were talking about events of the days. And he said, now, uh, t- tell me, Mr. Bennett. No, he didn't really say that. He said, now, uh, tell me, Daniel, what do you think about the current economic crisis since you've lived through so much and seen so many things? <laughs> what? <laughs> Okay, uh, old age is a, re- apparently I'm old, okay? Uh, it's, it's a relative term, right? It's a re- old age is, re- Zechariah and Elizabeth are probably in their early 60s, okay? So th- it's not like, it, they're past the childbearing years, but it, it's not like they're decrepit or anything, okay? Look, I'm old and, and we're ad- advanced in years, and this is what the angel says in response, verse 19. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, remember where Zechariah is standing. He's standing right in front of that veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place where God was, was to dwell in a, a special sense. Gabriel's like, you know this room over here that's, that's the, the most holy place? I'm in the real deal all the time. I stand in the presence of God. And God has sent me here to bring you good news. Good news for you and good news for all the people, and you don't get it. And shame on you, Zechariah, for not getting it. You, Zechariah, you should have known how how God dealt with Abraham, how God dealt with Isaac, how God has, has handled issues of infertility in the past. It's not that big of a deal to God to deal with this. Here's the principle. Let me, let me go on, actually, first. Verse 20 says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will, which will be fulfilled in their time. Verse 21, And the people were waiting for Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah was supposed to be in and out pretty quickly. He's not. Kind of looking at their non, they don't have watches. They're looking, they're wondering, what's, what's taking him so long? Says, says they were wondering his delay in the temple. When we came out, he was unable to speak to them. What the angel had said would take place, what Gabriel had said would take place, took place. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute, just as the angel said that he would. And when his time of service, that is when that week was over, he went to his home. What do we see about the response of Zechariah? I believe we see this. Even godly people, even godly, righteous people like Zechariah sometimes allow their individual experiences to overwhelm God's revelation. Don't. Even godly people sometimes allow their individual experiences to overwhelm God's revelation. Don't do that. Here's what I mean. Sometimes, instead of saying, okay, God's revelation is is big picture and majestic, and my experiences are a small slice of life, instead we say, okay, this my experiences, my life is is my big picture, and God's revelation comes in underneath my experiences. Don't do that. Here's an example. Let's say that you're a young couple you're in a dating relationship god's revelation tells you 
how you're to, be, to behave in that courting, dating relationship, how you're supposed to respond to members of the opposite gender who are not your husband and wife, how you're to treat brothers as, as treat other young men as brothers and young women as sisters. That's God's big overarching revelation. And yet sometimes in, in a dating relationship or a courting relationship, even when you're engaged, you say, look, man, it's just, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? And your experiences, the emotions that you're feeling, the attraction you're feeling overwhelms what God's revelation is. You look at your experiences instead of what God's word says. And if you were focused instead on God's great glorious revelation, you would interpret your experiences in light of that revelation. So instead of saying, look, this is my desire and this is what I'm feeling, these are my experiences and so this is what I'm going to do, instead you'd say this, look, this is what God's revelation says about our relationship. And our relationship may seem kind of insignificant in God's grand, glorious, global plan of salvation, but here's what God's revelation says. If you choose to walk in holiness and purity before me, you're declaring something about your relationship with me. And as you engage in a relationship in marriage, you're proclaiming something about the relationship between Christ and his church. And so even as just a, a young uh, man and a young woman in a dating relationship, you have the opportunity to proclaim the glory of God on into eternity in what seems like a small, insignificant matter. When you're at work, you have the opportunity to engage in your work in such a way that, that God is glorified and his name is proclaimed if you, if you interpret your work in light of God's great revelation and don't see your experiences as greater than God's revelation. Last night, Whitney and I were watching a clip from one of the greatest movies of the 80s, uh, Karate Kid. And remember there's that scene, and for those of you who, I guess I am showing my age a little bit, uh, The Karate Kid, great, great uh, movie of the 80s, uh, and I was watching that clip where Mr. Miyagi is, is uh, young Danielson is mad at Mr. Miyagi because Mr. Miyagi agreed to teach him karate and all he's having have him do is, is paint fences and wax cars. And Daniel's upset about this and Mr. Miyagi says, you know, wax the cars. Is that? Says, no, no, wax the cars. So he, as he goes through those motions, he, Mr. Miyagi shows him that he's been learning karate this whole time. We're in the mood. I do not know karate. I also don't know how to wax a car or paint a fence. The point is this. Sometimes as we look at our individual experiences, the things that we're doing, the things that God is, is having us do, it's hard to understand the big picture. God has one. Don't allow, don't allow your individual experiences to, to overwhelm God's revelation. Focus on what God says. Believe that. Do that. And allow God to take care of the rest. Last thing we see here, this last section is the response of Elizabeth. It's the right response. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. 
as we read Elizabeth's words, you kind of get a glimpse into the pain that she must have endured for decades. This pain of infertility. Did God love her in those other decades? Yeah. Would God have continued to love her and be a good God and a loving God even if he hadn't provided her with a child? Yeah. But what we see in Elizabeth's response, and here's the principle, is that God looks upon the lowly and cares for them. We're going to see that over and over in the Gospel of Luke. God looks upon the lowly, those who have been reproached, those who stand on the the edges and the fringes of society, and and he cares for them. God looks upon the lowly and cares for them. If, If you were a person in Elizabeth's life, she was kind of on the fringes. You know, she wasn't one of the ones who had children. She wasn't very prominent in her culture and her society, and yet God looks upon her, has care for her, Our response is then, the truth is that God looks upon the lowly and cares for them, therefore have faith in him. Have faith in him. God looks upon the lowly and cares for them, have faith in him. Here's what we're saying with all of this, this whole story. I think it's this, that that your provincial life, your local life, your small life is part of God's, God's God's cosmic plan. Your life, which is small, pathetic, fragile, yes, your life is part of God's plan of salvation, which is great and glorious and phenomenal. Very, Very often we think about the major events of our life and they don't show up on Fox News. We think about the big things that are going on in our life and CNN doesn't report on them. We think about the the seemingly unimportant things that that go unnoticed by everyone and we think, well, that's just the the little events in my life and that's not what God's word says. God is concerned with even the smallest details of our life. And God looks upon the lowly, God looks upon the outcast and even their lives are part of his amazing plan to save humanity and to bring glory to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we thank you for how you, in your great, glorious plan, provided them with a child and glorified your name. And we thank you for John the Baptist and his ministry of testifying to the greatness of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that our hearts would be turned toward you just as the, the hearts of your people of Israel needed to be turned toward you, that this morning our hearts would be turned toward you anew again. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.